This podcast is recorded on the traditional and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh, and Coquitlam peoples. British Columbia, I've seen your mountains high, seen your pretty rainbows and your blue crystal skies, watched your winding rivers as they flow around the bend. To me, you're not a stranger, you'll always be a friend. Coming to you from the West Coast, this is Politicos. Today is June 22nd, 2023. I'm Strat Lundabom. And I'm Ian Bushfield. On today's show, we're going to talk a little bit about the by-elections that are coming up, that just concluded. And it's it's officially summer, so we just have a grab bag of, like, end of federal parliament, start of summer news. There's no... We're not talking about the submarine, the... the sorry, the submersible, uh, and the five people who lost their lives. Six? Five. The people who lost their lives... Uh, we're going to talk about Canadian politics and BC politics. And if you like that, patreon.com slash politicoast. Let's start here in British Columbia. Not much to say about the by-elections that are coming up. They are on Saturday. We've talked them when they kicked off. Uh, Mount Pleasant in Vancouver and Langford, Juan de Fuca, are both pretty strong BC NDP ridings. And if they don't score above like 60%, uh, they're still going to win. Um, so it'll just be a sign about turnout, if anything. Yeah, I live in uh, Mount Pleasant. I've got a couple flyers uh, in the mail. Seen like maybe a couple signs at that. Like it, it is a pretty low-key affair here, all things considered. There's a little That's- bit of brouhaha that in your writing about the PC conservative candidate, because they picked this like ex people's party person who's pretty vile. And I mean, I don't think it's really even worth getting into really, that. Like gotten off of Twitter at this point. Yeah. I, it's not a place where I would expect the PC conservatives to have even like a half respectable showing. Like we're going to talk about the people party, which didn't even have that in these federal by-elections. So anyway, if you live in those writings, uh vote i guess yes go vote uh this saturday feel like it will make a difference under first past the post let's talk about the four federal by-elections we previewed them last week i think we weren't expecting too many surprises and we weren't given any surprises it was two liberal seats and two conservative seats and it remains two liberal seats and two conservative seats uh starting in the by-election i almost forgot in quebec notre dame de grasse westmount uh, former Mark Garneau riding where he won 24,000 votes in 2021 at 54%. Uh, Anna Gainley of the Liberals won 11,000 votes and 50.1%. So like a, a slight drop overall. Yeah, I think I joked last week that uh, not being an astronaut might cost the Liberal candidate a couple points. And uh, it looks like I was right on the money with that one. What was actually more interesting about this writing that I didn't realize until the election was done is the Green Party's co-leader, uh, Jonathan Pednall. Who? Yeah, exactly. The not Elizabeth May one. Um, he ran in this one and came in fourth, but it was a better fourth <laughs> than they did. Actually, they were fifth last time, so he improved their results significantly. Um, one of the two people in this entire set of by-elections to increase their party's raw vote uh, in 2021, the Greens got 1,835 votes at 4%. In this by-election, he got 2,922 votes at 13.4%. So a significant increase, but given he was co-leader, um, it was probably hoping for more, even if it was an unlikely win. He was just edged out by the Conservative in Quebec, uh, who got 2,900 votes. There, that's been... Conservatives do elect people in Quebec. I mean, granted, it's not on the island of Montreal. No, uh, not this part of Quebec. Uh, and the yeah, NDP, it's the Montreal part, not the Quebec part, that you should be incredulous about there. Yeah, the NDP candidate got three thousand and one votes at thirteen point eight percent. The NDP dropped from eighty seven hundred votes and nineteen percent. Uh, conservatives kept roughly their percentage and dropped from sixty four hundred votes to twenty nine hundred votes. So the Conservatives kind of held on to the rough percentage. Uh, the NDP did a little bit worse, probably at the expense of the Greens. Uh, the Bloc also did worse. They had 5.3% in 2021 and 45 They lost just over half of their votes, more than half, uh, 2,400 down to 985. Uh, and the People's Party uh, got 0.6% of the vote there. Not a big winner in Montreal, it turns out. 
Moving, yeah, shocker. Yeah, moving west Oxford, uh, the Conservatives managed to hold on to this seat. In 2021, they got 29,000 votes and 47%. This time, 16,000 votes and 43%. So, you know, they dropped in proportion with the turnout and a little bit worse. The Liberals here, though, are an interesting story. They jumped from 12,700 votes to 13,500 votes. Uh, and increased their percentage from 20.5% to 36.2%. Uh, the polls suggested this one might be competitive based on the Main Street numbers we talked about last week. It was still, uh, what is that, seven-point gap between them. So a safe win by the Conservatives. But like, if the Liberals are looking for good news, this is it, this one candidate. And the fact they held the other two seats that they held. Uh, the NDP again lost a bunch of votes here. They dropped from 11,000 to just under 4,000 with their vote share going from 18% to 10. Uh, and the People's Party also just like got obliterated to below the Christian Heritage Party. They dropped from 6,500 votes and just over 10% uh, to 1,200 and 3%. Uh, and the Green Party had 2% in this riding at 820 votes, which is roughly the uh, popular vote they got in the last election down slightly, I think. I didn't pull those numbers because they weren't interesting. Portage Lisker in Manitoba was the one I was most interested in because another party leader was running there, Maxime Bernier for the People's Party. Uh, Max Bernier on the ballot. I guess Maxime is not the name he wanted to run on. There. I guess not. Uh, the Conservatives took this handily. They got 52% of the vote in 2021 with 24 4,000 votes. This time, 20,000 votes and 65% of the vote. So that, like, they did lose some, but way less. Like, most of the time in these by elections, you're getting half the turnout you usually do. So you're seeing with all these raw numbers, people are usually losing about half their votes. Except here, the Conservatives only lost a few thousand. Like, they really got every right winger to coalesce around Brandon Leslie. Well, not every right winger, well, because no. 17%. Uh, went for Bernier, but yeah, like that was also the problem. There's like they threw a lot of stuff at this to try to finally kill off the People's Party, and yeah, the People's Party vote went down both in terms of raw numbers and percentage, but like they still got second place here. It wasn't like the knockout blow they were hoping for. It it's yeah, it's not definitive, but like to go from twenty one and a half percent and ninety eight hundred votes to seventeen percent and fifty four hundred votes like they lost more than half of their votes when the conservatives held their votes um that's just a clear indication of where they are able to pull that together when they need to um like the liberals lost a little bit the n d p dropped they only got a third of the votes they got uh, and the greens kind of sat around that two three percent mark again so Again, another not good result for the NDP. None of these were good NDP seats, so I could see them not spending the money. It's not good to underperform in by-elections, but it's not the end of the world. Like the People's Party. I feel like yeah. nobody cares what the like third place, fourth place, I guess. Still behind the block and seek. Nobody cares for like the third or fourth place party gets in a by-election a bad seat for them. Yeah, exactly. It wasn't worth them throwing money behind, but I think I saw some like weird press releases from the NDP office trying to spin these as positive. And it's like, just just don't talk about them. They weren't good for you. They weren't going to be good for you. And you did bad in them. That's okay. <laughs> Focus on the real contest. Uh, but for the People's Party, this is a bad election. Um, Winnipeg South Centre, final by-election. Uh, another one where the Liberals managed to increase their vote percent. Uh, ben Carr managed to take 55.5% of the vote over the previous result of 455 Uh The votes did drop from 22,000 to 14,000 as turnout just plummeted in Winnipeg, it looks like. Conservatives held their vote kind of. They dropped from 14,000 to 6,000, 27% to 23%. Uh, the NDP also dropped bad from 10,000 to 3,700. Uh, twenty percent to fourteen percent. Uh, Greens again. State one of these ridings. The Greens didn't have a candidate in twenty twenty one. I forget which one. Uh, the People's Party here got one point three percent. Winnipeg South Center was also the riding with forty eight total candidates. Uh, the best performing of those was Sebastian Coe Rhino, the leader of the Party Rhinoceros Party, uh, got fifty five votes. Uh, all of the rest got fifty two or fewer. Uh, the lowest performing person in this entire election was 
Salah uh, Wazerudin, apologies for pronunciation, who got one vote in Winnipeg South Centre. Probably their own. Uh, no, I don't actually think they live there. A lot of those write-in candidates did not live in the constituency. And so... And yet somehow, despite this uh, stunt, we still have first past the post. Even parties that run on abolishing it don't do it. So <laughs> got to try different things. Um, yeah, so overall, I think there's good things here for the Liberals to take away. They performed fairly well in all of these, uh, except Portage Lisger, but no one was expecting them to do well there. Uh, the Conservatives didn't lose seats. Uh, they staved off the People's Party. They did lose ground in Oxford, though, and that's something I think they're going to need to take an eye on. Well, not only that, like Winnipeg South Centre was a riding that they previously held. I think it was one of the ones that changed hands in 2011 when they got their majority. Like This is one of those ridings that you know, is on their path to victory. So the fact that they were not particularly competitive in there should be worrying to them. And, you know, more worrying than the fact that they didn't win in Westbound in, on Montreal. Like, uh, that was never going to be in competition for them. Even Oxford, like, they roughly held their vote fairly close. Yeah, they dropped a couple percentage points. Um and the liberals closed the gap, but they still held. There's not the signs here. It's, it's yeah. not making the gains in in Winnipeg South Center that like ought where they ought to have shown better results. Yeah, if there's not the signs here. Things were going their way. There's not the signs here that if an, a full by election were held in the next couple months, there's a massive appetite for a different parliament than we got in 2021, and that's kind of similar to what the polls have shown. Like a lot of the aggregators give it give the seat count a slight advantage to the conservative, but not enough for them to form a majority, and they don't have a natural ally. Even with like the best case scenario of some of them is like they could be just short of a majority with block support, which is a hell of a situation to put Parliament in if no one can I mean, form. A I like the Liberals have not had a good few months. Like they they should be more on the ropes than they are. Um, and it's not a great sign for uh, Pierre Paul yet that he wasn't able to kind of nudge things more in that direction because the fundamentals really do point to the fact that there should be a change in government in the next election. And yeah, I don't know if this is maybe a sign that uh, they should uh, change up their strategy and maybe spend a whole lot more time talking about cost of living, which is an issue they do very well at and uh to connect with voters on rather than you know having a uh twitter fight with the people's party about who's gone to more uh wef events and, and pride rallies well that was just in the picture they didn't explicitly say that um related to that it was interesting to see uh the national post did run a story quoting uh the conservative former campaign director uh, Fred DeLowry, uh, who and others are kind of questioning what's going on with the strategy behind the scenes. And so you're getting those kind of leaks that happen when people internally are quite dissatisfied and want to put pressure. Yeah, although it's on things to move. worth mentioning that like Fred DeLowry is not kind of in the inner circle at the moment. He was Aaron O'Toole's campaign manager, I believe, uh, and is more yeah. from kind of that wing of the party. So like, this is not like someone in the uh, leader of the official opposition's office is angry. This is someone who's, whose faction is not on the inside track at the moment being dissatisfied about that. Nevertheless, like the points are valid. Like, based on just everything else, the conservatives should have done better than they did. That said, there's like, you know, nobody should read too much into any by-election. Uh, particularly one where the seats don't change. And, you know, there's just as much danger that the liberals get even more complacent after this and just find new ways to shoot themselves in the foot. Indeed. So, yeah, if the, uh, yeah, conservatives may learn the right lesson and the liberals may learn the wrong lesson from that. Uh, and, but we won't know for uh, the couple years. The NDP should learn nothing other than they need to do a lot more work if they ever want to be a majority government, because some of these writings would have to be on the list for that. Uh, the, yeah, I think they've tried to give up on that, haven't they? For the short term. The 
greens uh not not having the breakthroughs they want although again none of these are likely to be green holds uh people's party just just quit uh your best case scenario now is like the path ukip did which is uh to have some electoral success but really just like radicalize the dominant conservative party and then just do entryism uh and they they've kind of done that although i don't think maxime bernier is ever getting back in but i don't think uh what's his face from ukip is ever going back to the uk conservatives farage yeah nigel farage that asshole <laughs> uh, and all those other parties i don't know the rhinoceros party i still think you're funny but the stunt didn't work but good try <laughs> not really Uh, yeah, let's move to the House of Commons, where they have taken a break for the summer. They finished off their sitting with their, you know, annual time allocation of a bunch of bills that the government is like, screw it, let's get these passed. And the NDP was happy to line up behind them because they supported most of them for better and worse. But I think the big news is there's like a series, and we can talk about some of the bills that passed in a minute, but there's like a series of stories that have come out in the past week or less on cabinet shuffles and looking at this summer so the big name on the chopping block looks like it's going to be marco mendicino who we talked about last week public safety minister and oh maybe also heritage minister pablo rodriguez if only let's get someone who can understand the internet to do the internet stuff yeah i think we'd both be pretty happy to see both of those people uh move on to other roles I have I no strong either. feelings about Mendicino either way, but... I don't know. I, I would at least hope that, like, read your damn emails is, like, this, like, base-level competence that anyone would expect of any minister on this. Yeah, so, like, Mendicino's had brow lungs. We've talked at length about that over the last few weeks. I don't think we really need to uh, touch on it more here, other than to say that... Uh, I don't know, it'd be nice if there was something approaching even a shred of uh, accountability for ministers doing a crappy job in this government. So, I mean, I hope he's moved out of it just on that grounds alone. Yeah, the CBC story on a possible cabinet change suggests possibly a major shift with some insiders saying only four or five people were really untouchable. And my default assumption was Christian Freeland, but they're trying to say she seems checked out and there's half speculation she might move. Although then they're like, no, her nomination papers are all ready to go for the next election, whenever that is, which isn't a like, she's going to stay deputy prime minister and finance minister. Oh, I mean, deputy guaranteed. prime minister is a bit of a kind of add on title. Fair. It's really <laughs> like you can keep someone as deputy prime minister and not kind of, uh, you know, demote them in a general set or like, you know, keep them at the same like status level even as you shuffle them out of finance um which like maybe wouldn't be the worst thing to do because when you think about trisha freeland at finance like what's like the one thing that's actually like penetrated out into the general consciousness uh of the public just i would say the china the childcare deals i was gonna say the disney plus comment uh oh yeah like yeah, in terms like, of gaps yeah freeland seems like a, a very good like person to work the machinery of government well like that's only half the finance minister's job and the doing the selling the economic message which is something government is incredibly important to most governments and the things they kind of tend to rise and fall on in large part is how well they're seen to manage the economy she hasn't done a super great job there and maybe a better communicator wouldn't be the worst thing on that front uh caucus members mps spoke on background to radio canada and they say that innovation minister francois philippe champagne who i have no opinions of because he has not made waves which i guess is a good sign uh foreign affairs minister menelie jolie and environment minister stephen Guilbeault are unlikely to be shuffled um probably the only surprise there's the last one um more because I know there's a lot of hate for him in Western Canada in the conservative circles, but that's not a reason that the liberals would necessarily care. I mean, uh, and he hasn't stepped in it as far as I know. I my understanding is he's not super popular within liberal circles. He's apparently really hard to work with. Um, 
and also like yeah not not a huge fan of him in like the oil producing sectors of the country or but like also stuff like just i gather developing like the trigger minerals which is something this government is in theory behind has just it's being tough getting that through the environment ministry and the, the minister on that so like it would there are some things that shuffling him around may help accomplish although i think they may also just like his purported cred on the environment file and it gives them some ability to say they're doing stuff and he is trying to do stuff he had the net zero bill come forward so it'll be interesting to see who moves around there's a possibility if this is a major shuffle that this is the we are going to put the people, and it seems like it's really focused on, we're going to put the people in the jobs who are going to lead us into the next election, which now I'm wondering if it's sooner. Like, if the NDP deal holds, it's 2025. If it doesn't, which these deals rarely hold the whole time, as we saw in BC and the entire, but like, there's four of these deals maybe in Canada's history, if that. Uh, and I don't know if any have survived the full term of a parliament. Well, now you're combining Ottawa's two favorite types of speculation, cabinet shuffles and early elections into one. Yes. Yeah. So, like, th- there's a non-zero chance that this is entirely the Ottawa bubble doing what the Ottawa bubble does and just taking a slow week as parliament rises for the summer and just going back to its favorite pastime of speculating about cabinet shuffles. And elections. Yes. Anyway, yeah, I, mean, I, like, I could it, see it happening by, you know, this time next year. So it, it is very clear, like, the government needs a reset and to actually fix a bunch of problems. It's also not clear that uh, this is any cabinet shuffles really going to do it because, like, a huge part of the problem is just, like, everything has to go through the PMO. And as we've seen, like, that has just slowed everything down and gummed up everything and... You know, if you're not going to change that or still trying to like, funnel the every major decision through like a couple people uh, in one office in the government, like there are inherent limits to that. And if they're not willing to change that or eat or even just kind of refresh the people are there, like Katie Telford's been in the chief of staff role for what, uh, eight years now? Like that is a long time for someone in that role just because it burns people out and yeah, you know, that might be the thing that's actually needed more than uh, shuffling around a couple ministers that all take their marching orders from the PMO anyway. Well, they managed to get a number of things done in the final days of this sitting. Uh, most notably, they got the budget through, which is not surprising. Uh, we talked about Polyev's attempt to filibuster it, uh, which turns out doesn't work in a Westminster system where you can use time allocation. And don't need a two-thirds majority to shut that down. You just need a simple majority. Uh, The government did pass a number of bills. In addition to the budget, uh, notably the Online News Act, C-18, passed today. And the Canada Disability Benefit also cleared the House, although I believe it still has to go through the Senate. Um, Both of those have been worked on for a while. I think the Online News Act is far more (laughs) obviously controversial than giving people with disability money is not a controversial thing. The finer details of there are whether or not uh, the government can mandate that insurance companies can't claw back their money. And the government ultimately said they can't do that because insurance is a private or is a provincial jurisdiction. I'm getting into the weeds without fully explaining it. But the good news is the disability benefit is coming. We just don't know how much money it will be. Uh, the Online News Act, of course, prompted Facebook to say, or Meta to say, that news is now banned on their platforms, Facebook and Instagram in Canada. I don't know, and there was much rejoicing. <laughs> well, not if you're Pablo Rodriguez, who uh, responded to this entirely predictable sequence of events with uh, something about how, you know, Canadians expect their government to stand, or it, no, it wasn't that, it was, who else but the government was going to stand up for Canadians against big tax or some such garbage like that? Um, but, like, it's what they said they were going to do. And, I mean, if you take the logic of why this bill was needed, right? Like, the proponents of it basically said, these social media sites, they're stealing our content, and that's not right, and they need to pay for it. Which, in theory, should mean if they just stop doing that by not allowing uh, news to be posted, it should all be all right. Uh, Somehow the uh, various media outlets that uh, 
keep in mind, like pay people to post to these sites and have a whole bunch of like embedded share buttons uh, on their their websites weren't super happy with that for some reason, almost like it's more about shaking them down for money rather than actually fair compensation for the uh, for the news articles that are just being linked to not like copy and pasted onto an entirely different website. Yeah, it's it's a mess of a bill. It's we have a problem and we saw, you know, those people need money, those people have money, let's just like, make them give it to one another. But it's like, it's not how government should work. Well, and yeah, and the whole like, even just like politically, this entire bill makes no sense. Because who's running on this like idea of we're going to fix news? How are you going to fix news? Well, we're going to force those companies over there, these tech giants that have a bunch of money to do private deals with the news companies to give them money. How much money? I don't know, whatever they both deem is appropriate. And if uh, they, that doesn't work, we'll have an arbitration system. Who? The only people who wanted this bill sincerely was the media industry, like the biggest media companies. They lobbied for it and they got it because Australia did it once. Uh, and yeah, anyway, this whole thing just left me with like a lower opinion of the media as a as an institution. I mean, individual journalists are still doing great work, but like at an institutional level, they are there's stuff wrong with how they're thinking about some of this stuff. Uh, and like, it's also worth taking like a step back and keep in mind this is all like a context of generally falling trust in media, and like, don't think it's gone unnoticed that the government of the day is helping out a bunch of media organizations and that this may end up coming back to uh, hurt them and their credibility in the long run. And this whole thing seems ill-conceived on that front in addition to the other fronts we're talking about. I also look forward to the uh, state of the media scrutiny of tech companies once all of these media organizations are getting money directly from them. That doesn't create any conflicts of interest. Maybe my opinion will change, though, if Legamboot Media Society uh, manages to get in on one of these deals. Though. I think we are too small and uh, don't actually employ enough journalists, i.e. we don't employ any, um, to actually... Not yet. <laughs> Patreon.com slash Uh yeah, it's a mess. The government also got C11, the Online Streaming Act, passed. Speaking of controversial amendments to the internet, there have been lots of controversies around that. Um, also one that was interesting. Conceived. Yeah. Uh, one that was uh, people were calling on for to get through that actually I think just got through today because I just double-checked what actually got royal assent today. C9, this is the Judges Act. This is one that I didn't really pay much attention to, but it creates a new process for the Canadian Judicial Council to review misconduct allegations against judges that would not otherwise lead to their firing. Uh, this is really relevant given Russell Brown's departure from the Supreme Court of Canada. He's not the only judge to have ever or justice to have ever been accused of anything, but having more, and this is something uh, Chief Justice Richard Wagner actually called for the passage of because justices themselves want an accountable justice system. And so... Good to see that SCOTUS. move forward. Oh, the oh, SCOTUS, yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, some of them do, just not the majority. S State of America. Uh, nevertheless, there's a bunch of things that are still on the order paper that did not make it through. Most notably is probably the firearms bill that's stuck in the Senate, and they are going to continue to debate. There's a lot of opposition to how the government is trying to run through their. Um, handgun ban and the related changes there i think we've talked about it a little bit in the past and we can come back to it again listeners if you're interested yeah, i think we mostly talked about it in like the first the incredibly ill-conceived attempt on it this is actually a different version where they kind of changed up some of the stuff as we still kept some of the problematic bits i don't think we've really dived into yeah the other we'll come back to it then the other thing that's been sitting around for a while is one of the liberals, I don't even know which election they promised that it, but they wanted to create a border agent. They wanted to create a watchdog for the Canadian Border Security Agency, the CBSA, uh, for better accountability. This is something BC Civil Liberties and other types of groups like that have been arguing for for years, and we still don't have that. So that is sitting on the order paper, and it would be lovely to see the government care about 
accountability and oversight for those institutions. Uh, some of the other bills that are sitting on the order paper that I think are pretty prominent are ones that were introduced fairly late in the session. So the bail reform ones that the provinces that have been calling on that was introduced fairly recently, uh, the Sustainable Jobs Act we talked about, I think that was last week. And today they just introduced uh, a bill to amend the airline industry to require service standards from airlines and airports and enact penalties of unspecified amounts if they don't meet them. This is basically don't don't leave people at the airport for hours and hours or have your flight delayed unreasonably anymore. Yeah, there are also some problems that uh, help precipitate this where basically the uh, complaint process had no like firm timeline and like stuff took months to years to sometimes get resolved. Like, the whole thing was a mess. Not entirely clear how much this going to fit that, but it probably moves things in the right direction. Yeah, indeed. So yeah, Parliament has lots to do in the fall, presuming they don't go to that snap election. <laughs> the other thing they were hinting at about this week, though, in addition to cabinet shuffles and possible elections, is a public inquiry into foreign interference. There was a couple stories hinting that the opposition parties were in negotiations with the government. Uh, the Conservatives and the blocs have, have both said they have a list of people who they would love to see lead an inquiry. Uh, the Conservatives have said they will only give that list once the inquiry is announced, which uh, I'm sure there's a justifiable reason for that. Um, my favorite part is on Wednesday, Yves-Francois Blanchet, the Bloc Québécois leader, told CBC, I believe we have to agree on something before the end of the sitting, uh, which can't go later than Friday, given they've risen and we don't have a public inquiry. Maybe it's not happening, and it was all for naught in the end. It wouldn't be the first time the Liberals have tried to run out the clock on this. Like, Hopefully it goes ahead, because like, the issue's not going to go away. It's just going to simmer in the background, and you know, if you don't deal with it now it's potentially just going to get even uglier in the future. Yeah, the the government doesn't need to be, Parliament doesn't need to be sitting for the inquiry to be called. As far as I know, it's just an order in council. The, the Inquiry Act exists and it gives the government the power to declare one. Um, so it's on their clock when they want to do this. Uh, and the very, the very helpful suggestion from NDP leader Jagmeet Singh was, all right, we, we should have a consensus around who runs this. And the best way to do that would be an all-party committee, which, like, he's probably not wrong, but it just sounds kind of silly. I don't know all of... It's, I guess, less silly than Polyev coming forward with, like, you have to draw, pick one of my names. Like, no, he doesn't. It would <laughs> like, be the maybe worst. there's a reasonable would, name in there. It would not be the worst idea if the levels actually went along with that. Um, I mean, the the big mistake with the Johnson thing was picking someone that wasn't um, acceptable to the conservatives on this. And that led to the whole chain of events that ultimately led to Johnson stepping back. And like, you know, going by what the uh, reporting says, like a decent chunk of the uh, interference was allegedly to hurt the conservatives to the liberals benefit. So like, in some ways, they are the aggrieved party here, and having someone that it's acceptable to them ought to be something that a practical government trying to actually put this thing to bed in a reasonable manner would uh, would take into consideration. But how do you feel about Blanchette's suggestion of former Supreme Court Justice Louise Arbour? Can we please find some people that aren't former Supreme Court justices to do stuff? It's ridiculous. Like, she's a Fine jurist, but Jesus Christ, there's more than like one job people can have before they they get to do this sort of stuff. Just don't go with uh, former Governor General uh, Julie Payette. <laughs> I know that'd be even worse. Um, what one suggestion I had heard floated, and I gather there's very he's not signaled he's interested in this at all. Would be like um, Richard uh, Fadding, who used to run CSIS. Um, like someone with like an intelligence background might be an, another option on there. Regardless, they actually have to call the thing first. Uh, yes. The other notable story I thought that just came out 
today from CBC was a exclusive interview that the House got with uh, the new National Security Advisor, Jody Thomas. Um, this is the position that I think has seen like eight people in seven years. Is that right? I think roughly like that. Yeah, the NSIA. Uh, I might have the numbers wrong, but it was definitely been an excessive amount of turnover. Uh, among the various things she told the House in that interview that will be airing on Saturday, um, they are going to find the leak and punish them. So that's not, not surprising. Like you would expect the government to try and crack down leaps from within the intelligence service. Um, that said, it is notable that uh, government seems to be a whole lot more upset that someone was leaking than someone tried to interfere with our elections. And that has uh, that perception has just contributed to the government's problems and the uh, view that they are not taking this with the uh, seriousness that is needed. And uh, this sort of interview doesn't help on that. Like, she's not wrong in that leaks from intelligence agencies are bad, they harm our credibility with allies, and all, like, nothing she says is wrong, and it is correct that the leaker broke the law, because whistleblowing laws don't generally cover national security issues in the same way, even where we have good whistleblowing laws, which I don't think we have as strong as uh, we could but that's not something I've read up and up on. But yeah, the like politics of getting into this job and well, I guess she's not that new to the job, but anyway, going to like a major public interview and just like attacking the leaker when she is, she's not the head of CSIS. She's the uh, security advisor. So it's like a far more political position. It's yeah. It's an interesting interview. I might have to actually download it and listen. One other thing to come out of Ottawa in this past week, just yesterday, was the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People Implementation Plan. This is something Ottawa has been working on for a couple of years following the passage of their federal uh, Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People Act. Neither of us have had a chance to really read this action plan or the recommendations in it. What I found most interesting, though, was the Assembly of First Nations was already lined up to not like fully slam it, but not they were not on side in a way that we saw, for example, here in BC when our action plan was announced last March. So the federal AFN called this, uh, was disappointed in the lack of consultation leading up to the creation of this plan. Uh, there's too much non-committal language. At the same time, Justice Minister David Lametti is saying, you know, it's not a perfect document, it's not fixed, and we're going to work on it. Uh, it was ambitious to try to do this in two years, uh, but he was glad, glad to have it done. It's a messy situation for the federal government. Like, Oh, yeah, undoubtedly. Nevertheless, like, yeah, it's, just, you know, yet another thing the government doesn't seem to be doing a super great job at. Which, you know, you can only accumulate so many of these before it really starts to hurt you. Yeah, like the federal government's history on indigenous sovereignty and rights is not great. <laughs> and is a much harder one than like all the provinces have done a lot of racist and bad things. But given how Canada was set up, the federal government bears the brunt of the responsibility. So I can tell or I find it reasonable that skepticism among indigenous voices is higher there than with like provincial governments even though there still is plenty um it'll be interesting to see how this starts to roll out and how they continue to move on this file at least but you know the action plan is out that i think is positive and there are some voices cheering that but uh kind of yeah it falls in like you say with a lot of the things the liberals have done where the like lofty promises aren't met with the like substantive results like bc's action plan was maybe a little bit more than two years i don't remember the timeline on that i think they did pass dripa during the minority period 
But yeah, BC could do it. Ottawa could have done a little better. All you have to do is make sure they're that people are happy and not like ready to slam you the day it comes out. Uh, speaking of people with bad jobs, uh, Alicia Dubois has decided she didn't like hers and she is out as the CEO of the Royal BC Museum, bringing this conversation back to the province we're in. This was kind of a surprise resignation, although uh, she hasn't had a great 18, 16 months in the job. Yeah, like was a surprise in the sense that this particular thing wasn't telegraphed ahead of time. Not a surprise in the fact that, like you said, it has been a rough stretch for the uh, museum. So officially, she says she is no longer best suited to the position and has personal family related reasons for not wanting to continue in the role. And I can believe that. Nevertheless, it's a kind of situation where it was just a year ago that the province rolled out the plans for an $800 million renovation that was later shelved and amid massive public outcry. Uh, Following that, they closed the Old Town exhibit saying it needed to be decolonized only to then later reopen it following more public outcry. Uh, The Times colonist goes into how she led the organization through a series of roundtables and public consultations with Uh, communities across the province and First Nations to try to see what the public actually wants out of a, you know, renewed Royal BC Museum, which honestly is a good thing to do and what they promised they would do. But then most of the consultations outside the city of Victoria had 30 or fewer people, including one in Prince George that attracted two people, one of whom was the mayor. (laughs) So it's like, 11 hours or so by car to get from Victoria to Prince George uh, or vice versa, I would presume. So like, I can see why people there wouldn't, there wouldn't be a lot of them with strong opinions on the exact nature of a museum that is, you know, a two day tour trip away. Like it's still kind of funny though, to only have two people show up. Yeah. I mean, it is the provincial museum, and I think there is a dedication to having traveling exhibits developed there that can reach all corners of the province. But, like, what do you do with no one showing up? You can't then proceed with, well, we're going to spend $900 million on this because then people will have strong opinions, as we've learned. But Well, I think with the, the $900 million, it was less... The specifics of what they were doing with the museum and more the fact that, you know, the province has a lot of struggles at the moment. We, a few weeks ago, we started sending cancer patients to the U.S. because our healthcare system isn't up to the task of doing that in province. Uh, housing is still unaffordable. And I think, you know, it wasn't so much that people wanted a different $900 million project. It's that for the museum, it's that they wanted those $900 million to go to things like building affordable housing or more hospitals or, you know, finding more doctors and stuff. And that, you know, that amount of money for a museum was always going to cause problems no matter how it was, uh, no matter how it was going to be done in the specifics of the museum. Sure. Uh, nevertheless, internally, the museum has uh, struggled in other ways for the last few years. The previous full-time CEO, Jack Lohman, resigned in 2021 following a report by a diversity inclusion consultant that found that the society was, quote, dysfunctional and toxic workplace characterized by a fear of distrust and uh, characterized by a culture of fear and distrust. They then uh, did some work under uh, an interim CEO, Dubois was hired, uh, but then following this past year, I think it's just untenable to be in a situation of something that's in many ways a standalone arm's length body, but then also clearly have the political influence around things like your renovation and 
whether or not an exhibit is open or closed. And I wouldn't want that job, even though it's now open. So I hope someone qualified and talented can come in and help move the RBC um, forward. Because it's a nice museum in many ways, and there's a lot of opportunity there for it to be. Well, speaking of civil servants having very tough jobs, federal civil servants are under fire this time from conservative and other opposition MPs who have complained to the speaker uh, following ATIP requests, which they shouldn't have to do uh, because they can ask the speaker and they can ask the civil service to answer their questions, but it turns out they weren't answering them very well. Yeah, this isn't so much the civil service as a tough job. It's the civil service is doing bad things and it's making everyone else's life difficult and then causing blowback on them. Um, so members of the House of Commons, they get to ask member questions to the civil service. The civil service is supposed to provide them answers. Uh, turns out when opposition parties were asking questions, uh, the civil service was treating it like a communications management exercise, much like uh, they do with media questions rather than providing the legislature that they're ultimately accountable to kind of direct answers. Uh, and we found this out because after uh, Michelle Rempel Garner was getting the runaround and not having clear answers to the questions she was putting forward uh, specifically to uh, natural resources, uh, eight, uh, put in a access information request and turns out there's a bunch of emails going back and forth between uh, the civil service on how to answer but not answer the questions. Yeah, which, this, which is, is this is yeah, this is a bad story. Um, not surprising. The efficacy of our legislatures to get good answers from government, whether that is the executive or even just the bureaucracy, has been declining provincially, federally, uh, under multiple consecutive administrations. So there's not a lot to say here other than just like, that's bad, shame. Um, yeah, I mean, people would have lost their mind if that was something that happened under the Harper government. and But like also... There, I think it fuels the perception that uh, the civil service is somewhat partisan uh, because, I mean, from how this looks, it looks like they're more acting as like an arm of the liberal party, of the governing liberal party almost, than as kind of the nonpartisan uh, civil service they're supposed to be. And... You know, this is the sort of thing that uh, next time there is a change in government, the new government is probably going to remember and it's likely to uh, cause friction. Which is not <laughs> um, great. Unless they continue to run S.H.I.E.L.D., in which case uh, they will do nothing. democracy is going to catch up to all of this. It's, well, it's not like the... Uh, one, one would hope. Yeah. It's not like the government's done a particularly good job on, well anything recently and sooner or later people are going to get fed up with that no matter how unappealing the opposition tries to make itself um but yeah speaking of the opposition finally just a light story to end on from alberta conservative mp uh matt genero from edmonton he has it's not really clear if he has officially done anything, but he posted to Twitter a letter that he calls an official grievance that he is filing with the speaker, uh, Anthony Rota, to complain that Taylor Swift isn't coming to Canada on her next world tour, which is like not a thing Parliament does. And we are not a serious country sometimes. No. <sighs> official grievances are not something that I think are in the parliamentary rules of procedure and the standing orders. Um, no, they could always put like a motion forward using one of the opposition days, I guess. Yeah, or you know, like seek all party consent. You could like do that on weird any and petty. Yeah. And like they have done some weird and petty motions, but like, hey, pop star needs to come here. Like I've I've heard it suggested this was a joke, but it's I I don't fully get it. Other than he just wanted to like 
get a whole bunch of attention as like i like taylor swift and like there, there's no like obvious wink winking to the camera on this to, like let everyone no one knows i mean joke, he replied so. to a bunch of people who tried to make fun of him with like we got you swifties <sighs> maybe or maybe that was someone else sorry i i didn't follow yeah. this Anyway, uh, in a rare bipartisan moment, uh, there was a liberal that said they would second this. But uh, that just spreads the unseriousness around. Yeah, I, st- I still love the idea of the party of less government using the power, wanting to use the power of government to, like, shame a private pop star and business decision. <laughs> he did cite the economic benefits her tour could bring in his tweet, though. I mean, it could be worse. I mean, consider what this uh, government has been willing to, like, shell out to get economic activity in Canada. I mean, it's good that we aren't cutting, like, a billion-dollar check to uh, fund yeah. the tour. Okay, what gets me most is General was elected in 2015 and was has served a number of shadow cabinet roles, including health. Like, he's not a fringe backbench in the Conservative Party. He's not, like, the number two, but... He's had some prominent yeah, roles, like, and he should know how Parliament works. And this is, yeah, ridiculous. Anyway, not serious. I mean, all of these people have uh, involved. Like, I guess Melissa Lansbitt, who was one of the other conservatives that chimed in on this, was only twenty twenty one. Yara Sats, the Liberal, elected in twenty twenty in a by election, so a little longer, but like, still. At this point, even the newest person there was a lawyer, I think, and want to know that stuff. And B, like, it's 2023. Like, you've had a couple of years. You learned stuff. And can we please just focus on the fact that, like, housing is, like, ridiculously unaffordable rather than trying to, like, micromanage a pop star's tour dates? And that has been Playtoast. Find links to everything we talked about at playtoast.ca. Support the show and get access to our Slack channel at patreon.com slash Our intro music credit is Beautiful British Columbia by Serge Plotnikoff. Palatoast is a production of Legend Boot Media and editing services are provided by CHLY 101.7 FM in Nanaimo. Thanks for listening. <laughs>